going on time because I have enough for two hours. <laughs> it's just how I roll. <laughs> I'll squeeze it in, though. So let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word, and especially the Psalms, the richness and the blessings that uh, are packed full in, inside of these books. And we thank you for your presence here this morning. We do ask for your guidance and your blessing, Lord, that we may grow uh, reading your word and discussing it and learning more about you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, this morning we are studying the Golden Psalms. I didn't realize it was titled that. It was Charles Spurgeon that led me there. This is a copy of his cover, The Treasures of David, where he goes through all of the Psalms. Uh, it's quite amazing, actually. It, it would take a lifetime to read all of it. But he, he breaks down each psalm. I'll explain in a bit why it's called the Golden Psalm, and it's why I wore my golden tie. <laughs> so this psalm uh, means a lot to me because when I was in graduate school, I committed it to memory, the NIV translation of it. And as I've studied it, I've learned more about it over the years, I've learned that I had misinterpreted it. On, on in some cases, and I'm going to uh, go through that today. But still, even with an improper interpretation of some of it, it still uh, guided me and encouraged me you know, through my graduate school days, which um, are not for the faint at heart. So. so here's the psalm. Someone with a big, deep, rich voice, if you would... Uh, read it. You don't have to do it dramatically. You can just read it loudly. Volunteer. Just read away. Out loud. Yes. So a little little bit about context. This was written, well, it's believed that it was written during David's exile period. So he had not he had not installed a king. He's fleeing from Saul. That's uh, what I've read. And the other th 
puzzling thing is this word mitzah, which is the Hebrew word, and it's untranslated everywhere you look. So I thought I would just uh, show you the, the information that I got through uh, various theologians and commentaries. So this term, it's, it's an untranslated Hebrew word because uh, it, they're really not sure what it means. The translation got lost. Uh, my commentary, and I think most of yours, if you look in your notes, it may say that it's a musical term or a liturgical term, and even that's a little bit vague. Psalm 16 is the first time we see the term. It's also used in Psalms 56 through 60, and Charles Spurgeon makes a connection between all these psalms and says they all end triumphantly. They all seem to have a theme of security and satisfaction in God. Whether that has anything to do with the term, nobody really knows. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this term because there's a lot of speculation about it. Now, according to some, the Hebrew word is derived from a noun which means gold, hence the golden psalm. It's derived from a verb which means to cut, to grave, or to write. So I found this, I can't remember where, because Matthew gave me a bunch of stuff to read, and it starts to all blur together. But somebody had said, uh, or somebody had found the words, an inscription upon a pillar to David. Where that came from, I'm not sure. But the point is, is that the words are, are so precious that they would be written in gold and inscribed possibly on, some, on a plaque that you would hang in the temple or the doorpost, and it's alleged that it was displayed in the temple at some time. Also derived from a verb which means to hide, like something precious, and denotes a mystery or secret. So there you go. If you ever wondered what mitcom means, it may mean all of this. <laughs> But one thing we can think about, nobody answer this now. I think some of you probably know this. What is David's precious or golden mystery? What is he talking about? We can chew on that, and if we have time, we'll answer that question at the end. So regarding this psalm, I, maybe really quickly, broad strokes, general essence of the psalms, if anybody wants to share, like, you know, compare this to other psalms? How would you categorize or describe generally this psalm? Um, type of psalm it is? I mean, any thoughts? I had some, but I, I thought I would let others share their thoughts if you've ever meditated on this psalm or something that pops in your head now. It's a prayer? Yeah, especially in the beginning, right? Mike, yes. Hmm. 
So would you, uh, some of the Psalms are, are full of some anxiety. Uh, you could describe some Psalms as being um, evoking dismay. I'm, I'm thinking of some of those. That, that certainly is not here. This is, as Mike said, it, it's a very uh, secure, or at least what I get is security, safety, um, more, more of those themes. And you'd think David was running. David was fleeing at this time. Uh, so I, I find that to be very interesting. But let, let me lay out a structure here that most commentators lay out. Three of them, as a matter of fact, three of the resources that, that Matthew gave me organize it in this way. They set up uh, the first four verses are the marks of the believer. So we've kind of categorized that in mindset and attitude. Strong themes of commitment and devotion. The second part would be present blessings of the believer, contentment and satisfaction, gratitude, kind of are displayed in these four verses. And then finally, the prospects of the believer, confidence and security. Now, this is a pretty good structure right here, and it really got me going. It helped me to kind of frame uh, how I was going to understand this psalm and then eventually present it. But there's a better structure. There's, a more, there's something that's more thorough, and we're going to get there. If anyone knows what a chiasm is or chiastic structure, I suppose if uh, Brendan was here, he'd jump all over that one. But I didn't, I didn't know much about it. But this psalm is in a chiastic structure. But we're not going to talk about that right now. You're going to hold on. You're going to stay tuned. I give you a little, little nugget like that to pay attention. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to methodically go through this. We're probably not going to make it all the way. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know for sure. It might be, uh, I don't know, are the books, you know, they're organized in books. This is in the first book. I don't know if all of those were written uh, while David was in exile, but I, I actually think his, some of the later Psalms were when he was in exile. I don't know if anyone can chime in about that, but no, I, this Spurgeon says it, they just throw it out there and I didn't dig. So there's nothing like a good workbench to take things apart, to dig in deep. I haven't had a workbench since 2014. And um, I've, I've <coughs> yeah, yeah, we, we're having construction done. I'm, I'm putting a workbench somewhere. But it's essential. So basically what, what, what I'm going to do here is we're going to look sentence uh, a verse by verse, we're going to look at a Hebrew. We're going to look at the Hebrew word, not all of them, just kind of the operative words, and we'll look at other places that the word was used, and it'll actually kind of open up a better understanding. And it's it's not anything I'm forcing on anybody. This is like what I do. Analysis to me is um, the essence of satisfaction. Uh, I know analysis can be tedious and boring. I do it with music. That's actually what I do. Um, that's what I teach. And when you dig in and, and, and really take something apart, 
you gain a better appreciation of it, but more importantly, a better understanding of it. And so I misinterpreted a lot of these verses when I had this thing committed to memory and used it. God still used it. The Holy Spirit still used it. But I learned so much uh, preparing for this study. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take this word, preserve me. And I actually thought, because I memorized the NIV, translates, keep me safe. So some kind of impending danger, keep me safe. But actually, that's not the best understanding of the word. Preserve me is pretty good. But then I thought, what, preserve me like a hunk of beef jerky? So, yeah, it is. So that I don't rot, right? I mean, there's some logic into that. We're going to talk about corruption and decay in a little bit. Maybe it's a call out to God, don't, don't let me rot. Don't let me fall into corruption. I thought, is David talking about his line? Preserve my line? We're going to get into talking about that. But if you look at what the term means, shalmar is the Hebrew word, to diligently keep, watch, pay attention to, guard, protect. There's one it puts a different spin on that word, right? Or uh, it opens up more than just preserve me. And I like to look at where it's used elsewhere. I think the most interesting to me is what's said to Adam to, for, uh, regarding the garden, to cultivate it and keep it. The word, the translation is keep. It's the exact same word, shalmar, that's used. So you think about keeping a garden, what's involved there, watching over it, tending it, uh, making sure those pesky spring rabbits aren't chewing the daylights out of it. Or, or And this leads me, I always ask the question, what was the snake doing in the garden in the first place? What was it? I always, no one's ever answered that question for me. I think I posed it here at a Sunday school a year or two ago. So that <laughs> it's part of the plan, obviously, but it's but I, I like to look at it as part of Adam's sin. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll move on from that one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, definitely, uh, uh, if, if any of you want to hammer my nails a little deeper, just feel free to do it. Oh, that was a workbench analogy. <laughs> um, the angel also, uh, even to Landon's point, uh, after the fall, the angel was guarding the way. And so this image of that angel with the flaming sword guarding anyone coming back. So anyways, you get the point. Um, there's also the covenant when God lays out his covenant to Abraham. He says, this is my covenant you shall keep. So we want to think about, um, I always think when, when David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is this sense that you're 
you're holding the word of God in your heart. You're guarding it and keeping it. So all of these things give me a deeper understanding of this word and what David is asking of God here. Um, and by the way, a related word, a, a Hebrew word, this um, Charles Spurgeon mentions, Nausar, it's related to Shalmar, is what Job calls God. He calls him the preserver of men, really like the watcher of men. When he's saying, why is, more or less like, why is this happening, happening to me? You're watching all of mankind. You, you know that I have not sinned against you. Um, so that, that's interesting. So the other word then is take refuge. And we were talking about this at the beginning. And I, you know, I'm, I struggle with the King James because it just doesn't flow and it's hard to memorize. But the King James, for me, always seems to have the better translation. And so I always like to have a King James next to me when I'm reading my ESV, which flows, just it, which, uh, which is easier to, to memorize for me. Uh, but the King James translates this word to trust. And I think that's a better understanding. But, but it is to seek refuge or shelter in someone or something. But actually to have hope, to put trust in. And that would be trust for life, protection, well-being, and future. So that gives you a, a kind of a deeper understanding of that first sentence, what David is calling out. I don't know if anyone has any, any comments before I, I, I dig into the other elements and we look at the whole. Any thoughts on the translation? All right, so the other word is good. I found this word fascinating. So that's pretty, it seems like a pretty standard word, but where you see it used is inter interesting. Tobe is good or goodness, and you see the definition there advantageous, valuable, prosperous. I think of where it's used elsewhere. All throughout creation, when, when God states and saw that it was good, that's the word that's being used. And when the Lord looked at Adam and said, it is not good that man is alone, man should be alone. And then also the tree, when they saw that it was good for food, and I think of, uh, I think Philippians 4, 8, for me is a New Testament um, example of, of what we could determine as good. So that, that led me to some questions about this. And any, then again, anyone, if you have anything to, to add, you can throw in there. But for me, I had to understand what is, what is David saying here. So that's the question I have. What exactly is David saying? I have no good apart from you. So I want everyone to think about that. I misinterpreted this. I didn't really have the right understanding. Yeah, Rob, Rob. Well, you think, you think it's, that's a cross-reference verse that's in your, oh, okay. All right, we'll, we'll maybe come back to that because we are going to talk about, uh, about Christ here in a moment. So here's, here's what I'm laying out. These are, this is my investigation. Is David saying, I possess no good apart from you? So you think of what Paul said. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And it goes on from there. Right? Everyone think about this because I'm not sure I know exactly what David is saying here. That's one side of things. Is David saying, I am or do no good apart from you? One of my favorite verses, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So is David saying that? Or there's also Psalm 14, which is quoted in Romans. There is none who does good. We're fallen. We do no good, right? Ah, the King James. This is peculiar. The King James translates this, my goodness extendeth not unto thee. Now that, to me, is wildly different, not wildly, I'm sorry, is different than I have no good apart from you. To me, it's different, right? So, is he saying I am or do no good for the Lord or for you? In other words, I bring nothing good to the table. That's a little bit of a nuance of some of the stuff I showed. Before I think of Isaiah, all have become like one who is unclean and our righteousness our righteous deeds are like a polluted rag. So in other words, our goodness, our righteousness is pollution. It's, it's, it's nothing good. I don't know, is, it, is everyone thinking this through? Any, any thoughts? It's perplexing, isn't it? So it's kind of all, like we could say, it's, it encompasses all of it. That's actually more or less where I've come. I think it's all of the above. Thank you. Any any other thoughts? I'm going to go back. Yeah, Mike. Again, like all of the above. Yeah. Now, okay, so you, I read all of these resources, and some of them believe that Psalm 16 is something Jesus quoted in the Garden of Gethsemane. And David, this is considered a messianic psalm. Christ is referred to, I, you know, at least one of the verses very uh, clearly, and it's, uh, we're going to look at the book of Acts. But if you thought of the whole psalm being the words of Jesus, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some believe this. Charles Spurgeon does not. Charles Spurgeon says there's not enough there. We don't want to go down these paths of speculation. It is referring to Jesus at a particular point. But if you thought of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and if we translate goodness to mean moral good, which it does, that, that Hebrew word does encompass that, if Jesus was saying, my goodness, my moral good extends not unto thee, and then insertion, but rather unto the saints. He's going to talk about the saints in the very next verse. We're moving to talk about the delight in the saints. So it's an interesting thing to ponder. A little bit of speculation here. Some of the things I've read point to this. But it's just one, one of them things when I'm studying scripture or analyzing music, whatever, if I can't quite figure it out, it gnaws on me. So, you know, thank you for indulging this tedious. Yeah, Grant. Now, it's not honorable. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. See, I'm not an expert. I'm just throwing out these Hebrew words, so I, I, I didn't study Hebrew. I'm just using the resources that I have at hand. But it, it's interesting to me to, to ponder these things and to think about this. Any other thoughts? Half hour on verse 1 and 2. But we're, we're not done because this is another thing that I found fascinating. Redundancy. Right? David uses three Hebrew words for God. And I, um, I'm going to argue that it's not perfunctory, that you, you see this sort of thing all the time. There's deep, deep meaning in, in the word, uh, or, or in the, the words that are used for, for God. So it's important to understand that. We have El, Yahweh, and Adonai. So he says, Preserve me, O El, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are Adonai. I have no good apart from you. So if we look at the meaning, this is what I drew out of um, uh, some of my uh, the Hebrew study. Ale translates to God. That, that's how it's translated in, in most of the, um, uh, the translations. But it actually means the mighty one. So you could think of David saying, preserve me, O mighty one. Almighty God. Okay, it's a title. Yes, yes, thank you. Yahweh, which when you see the small caps, Lord, and that's referring to, to that title, Yahweh, the God of Israel, where he says, it also, I believe, I am. Okay, and it, it refers to the God of Israel, right? That's the covenant God.
Okay, and also whenever that word is used, the, the, we could call it the baggage of the covenant is... Yeah, so the, the proper name of God. I, so I, I was thinking the holy God, creator of all things. Some of the uh, commentators were, were pointing that out. And then Adonai, my Lord. Sometimes you see our Lord, if Israel is, is appealing to God, it would be ruler of all things. So I, uh, Rob uh, said a lot, but this, is there any, you think there's any significance in the title and names that are used? Yeah, Cynthia. I like that. Yeah. Any other? So one thing that, that was interesting, one of the commentators point this out that Adonai, and I didn't know I, I didn't know this. David referred to Saul as Adonai. It is it is actually not a name, it's a title uh, for God, but it's not something that's only used God, even when David was in exile, he calls him my Lord. I think when he has a piece of his garment. Um, so I found that interesting that Adonai is a term one uses. It, it's submission to authority, and in this case for God, ultimate authority. But David also has that submission to Saul, even when he's being pursued. And I think our modern mindset would be I think in that case, it's okay to disobey. It's okay to strike that person down. At least, you know, Hollywood would frame it in that way. So I found that um, submission of David to be flowing from his submission to God, that, that he's still using this term Adonai to Saul. And, and this is a question we don't have to answer, but if you thought, what is your general attitude toward authority? And I think that says a lot whether or not, like how David is expressing, you are Adonai. I mean, that's, like I said, it's not perfunctory. It is really a, a, a showing an attitude of submission. So does anyone want to share what your attitude toward authority is? <laughs> Rob, yeah. I, I feel the exact same way, right? Choose carefully. Oh, okay. All right, so we're going to move on from there. That was verses one and two. I hope you found that helpful. So then, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And you know, saints always trips me up. It always has. I, 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 I would, I actually want to throw that term out. 
that grew up Catholic. So it's, it's embedded in me, the stained glass windows of the saints, the statues that existed at this big church that we went to, the angelic glow. I worked in construction. I ain't no saint, is what uh, people who made mistakes would, uh, would often say. So uh, for me, I always saw, when I <laughs> first memorized this psalm, I thought, oh, as for the saints, oh, the, yeah, you know, someday I'll be as, righteous as them. So the, the term, it, it's a stumbling block for me, but I understand what it means. And it's actually an appropriate term. It's, it's me who's got the issue. So I was going to ask the question, who are the saints? And a lot of you know this. But the term, uh, the Hebrew term, translates the holy set apart. So you can actually use the term to talk about a place or a nation. Right? So it's the set apart. And we were talking about the elect here the children of Israel. And I think the um, passage in Peter is, is the appropriate uh, definition for me. And you say, well, who, who's David talking about here as for the saints? I know this is New Testament, but I don't know if anyone's got thoughts on this. Anyone else get tripped up by that term? Anyone else think, oh, saints are cut above? All right, we'll move on then. Excellent ones. I couldn't help but think of Bill and Ted's excellent adventures. <laughs> Saints, they're excellent. Anyone? You never saw that? It's, all, it's a good one to see, isn't it? Um, the term actually carries way more weight than, than what the ESV translates. The term actually means majestic. And we do use that it's in the Psalms 8 and one of our hymns, O Lord, our Lord. There's Yahweh Adonai, how majestic is your name, right? So the saints are the majestic ones. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're, we're going to lead right into the, the false god. Cynthia actually um, uh, started that ball rolling. So we're going to, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're going to get there. I had Christian roommates, and I certainly did not <laughs> view them as majestic. Um, this does not mean that, that the saints or the believers, fellow believers, are perfect. Remember, they're, they're, equal, they're equally as flawed, right, as, as our uh, secular co-workers, roommates, or, or whatever the case may be. But there's something that, that David's getting at here, and it's flowing out of his devotion and commitment to God, and it, and it, and it pours out to the saints, to the uh, fellow believers, the chosen race. We're going to get to it, but I want you to think about that. They are termed the majestic which is, I said, deeper. And then this word, my delight, um, it's not just, um, I think of the pop sen uh, sensibility, some of the song lyrics that you hear about what people delight in. It's a, it's a deep term as well. It is translated as delight, but it encapsulates in the meaning what you desire. There, there's there's sort of a drive to the term. 
right? So, so you could think of it as the saints, when you say, I delight in the saints, it's, there's a desire to be with them. There's a, there's a pull to be with them, even though they're imperfect. They don't clean up after themselves. They say stupid things. You still are drawn there. I had to throw this in there. <laughs> I don't really need to say anything there. So I, I pulled this out, uh, this, this verse out of Isaiah, where the term is used. And you think about Christ and his church, his bride, and the delight that, that he has. This is, this is, again, an argument of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, the saints in whom is my delight. And they reference this verse in Isaiah, which is the prophecy of the coming Savior or Messiah. I found that, that interesting. So that, it's an interesting sentence, uh, which I didn't quite understand. And it's not, you know, if you, if you take it lightly, oh, Christians, yeah, they're cool. I like hanging out with them. It, it's way deeper than that. And I wanted to throw out, if, if someone could read this loudly. One of the, one of the resources Matthew gave me was from James Montgomery Boyce, and he put it this way. Mike had a great voice, but I, I, my throat is, it, it just doesn't project. Does someone want to hit this one? take, isn't it? I like that. Doesn't mean that we are judgmental, by the way. Doesn't mean we don't associate with them. We don't work with them. We don't uh, allow them to be our roommate or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, sometimes you may uh, experience persecution. I said I worked construction and um, when I became a Christian, I stopped swearing. Was, you know, crude language. And you get persecuted, but um, I, I like, uh, oh, just because I had the graphic and it was so fun. <laughs> In whom or what do I delight? That's a good question in your time of prayer. But what, do, what whom do I delight? In whom do I delight? Or, or what do I delight in? You should actually, I don't know. I, I'm glad Tim's not here. Yeah, he would set it straight, but you, you get the question, right? It's like, what are you, what are you longing for? Uh, okay, we move on from there. We're doing okay. This, this I find interesting. This, this verse, uh, it, uh, understanding of it opened up for me. I, I kind of vaguely understood 
what it meant, but we have worship terminology here. Most of the commentators believe it's figurative, although literal pagan worship was going on during this time, obviously. But David is not talking about literal worship. So when he says offerings of blood pouring out and so on and so forth, it is more figurative. Um, but these words, interesting, as to Beth, is a hurt, injury, pain, wound, bruise, sorrows is okay, but I more or less interpreted, interpreted that as sadness when I first memorized this. Like you'll be maybe depressed or uh, like the blues songs, nobody knows the troubles I've seen, although that, that is talking about hardship, right? The other term, run after, I did think initially chase, and, and that is there, we're chasing after other gods, but again, this term goes so much deeper, to hasten after, that is the King James, I believe King James uses hasten, which implies some form of anxiety. Uh, you act quickly, uh, I kind of uh, uh, interpret it as you move or act without thoughtful consideration. You're just, boom, you just go which in some cases is good if someone yells fire and there's a fire, we, you, you don't really need to think, you just. But here's some nuance here. To be carried headlong, to be liquid or flow easily. And that sheds some light on this when we run after other gods, we pour out ourselves, we flow. And, and I'm thinking about talking about uh, the figurative worship, you know, pouring out libations of blood, that's the NIV. So that I found really um, convicting, actually, that we flow like liquid after other gods. Go with the flow, yeah, I, I thought, I was gonna, yeah, just, just go with the flow. You can think the, the what, what is it, the elemental principles of the world that, yeah, just, just go with it. Don't, 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 don't go against the waves. Just, just move it. Another term that draws out of this, or another translation, sorry, is barter. Some of the commentators point this out, that in the exchange of goods without money, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But not, not really that, but... You run after these gods because you expect them to do something. You're going after them for something. But then in return, whether or not you get it, they will demand something of you. I don't know. That's a thought that I have. So that deeper understanding of that word run after. And then this one, this one cuts to the quick. The Hebrew word raubau, to become much, many, or great. And it was fascinating to see where that term is used, Genesis 1, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. And then also to the woman after the fall, your pains in childbirth will greatly multiply. That term is used there. And then uh, God's establishment of his covenant with Abraham, fear not Abraham. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. So you want to look at it, it's not just multiply, it is they become many, but they become great. All right, so your bruises, your wounds, your troubles, 
when you flow like liquid after other gods, those troubles will become many and great. They'll overtake you eventually. I mean, that, when I meditate on that, it, it, like I said, cuts to the quick than reading it sort of on the surface level. And then finally, lips. I will not take up their names on their lips. In worship, the pouring out of blood, they, there was customary in pagan worship to drink from the cup. That's not what's being talked about here, although they, uh, one could be led uh, to think that. Lip is not the greatest translation. I can't remember what the King James says here, but the, the, the word translates to speech or language. Does the King James use it, lips? Okay. One of the other translations uses speech. So you think of where, where it was used, Tower of Babel, the Lord confused the language. That's the word being used here. And then when Moses appeals to God and says, how shall I go to Pharaoh? I am of uncircumcised lips. He's actually saying unskilled speech. So this is a verbal thing. So David is actually saying, I will not speak their names. He's also saying they will not be part of my vocabulary. And then not going to swear by them, right? <laughs> so you see, like like the depth that that the Hebrew words kind of draw out. I, and then uh, Cynthia actually mentioned uh, Exodus twenty. If we look at that, no other gods. You will not make. You will not bow down. You will not serve them. And here's a question to take away, because uh, I'm now I'm not running after. Other gods, I'm running after time. Or <laughs> this. What other gods do we place before gods? It's something to think about in your quiet time. And then why are we prone to do this? Well, the, when I pondered it, it's, it's not just hedonism. It's not just I'm seeking pleasure. I, For me, it is deep-rooted anxiety sometimes. It is fear. You know, I run after, you know, you think about, um, for me, you know, uh, since entering graduate school career, you've got people running around you who never sleep. They work all the time. I mean, I, for the first time in my life, I met people who would say, hey, you want to go out and get a coffee? Yeah, I, I don't have time. I mean, whereas I worked with construction workers who will always go get a beer after work. Always, so I always want to hang out, you know. So it was a, these these two different worlds. But I kind of fell into that. Now I need to be home working. Uh, so for me, it's anxiety that I'm going to miss out on some kind of career. So I'm going to pour myself out like liquid.
that's coming. That's Reminds me of uh, uh, what you're saying, Jeremiah, the study in Jeremiah that we were going through. Jeremiah kind of galvanized and uh, was able to set himself in this way as well. Interesting thing, you know, to think about that when you're uh, having a quiet time. So uh, Scott led into this, the inheritance, the chosen portion, and, and so on and so forth. This I'm getting from from the theologians I read. We just came out of this worship, this, this figurative worship talk. So when you say chosen portion and cup, you think we're still talking about that, the portion of animals and the cup and so on and so forth. But it is pretty widely accepted that this is referring to food. It's, it's a metaphor for a great satisfying meal uh, or a daily meal like the manna falling from heaven, daily bread. Sustenance would be a good way to, the Lord is my chosen sustenance, nourishment, satisfaction, and enjoyment. You think about a great meal. Right? That's, that's what a lot of the commentators point, point to uh, here with this. Um, King James says, the portion of mine inheritance. So you don't even talk about food there. You're... you're referring to uh, your, your future, what is held for you. So I like that. I like the King James here. And that, oh, those were uh, when I said daily bread and man shall not live by bread alone. I thought just kind of framing it in, in some of the passages that we uh, see pretty frequently. But this inheritance. So the King James doesn't say portion of my cup. It says portion of my inheritance. And then that's what David is talking about after that. Lot, lines, inheritance. They're different terms, but they're all related. And maybe Nick can chime in on this because he did a deep study on territory and inheritance. But uh, it's the casting, well, the, how territory was divided in the inheritance. It's casting of lots. Okay, and you might have gotten the fuzzy end of the lot, the fuzzy end of the lollipop. You may, maybe didn't get what you thought was, was great lines. And your brother got the one with the lake or whatever. I don't know. You know, this, is, this has been your study, right, Nick? So you want to think about that casting of lots for, it's got, it's got to be, you know, nerve wracking in some sense for some who aren't trusting God, obviously. But then uh, for, the, for the believer, God controls the outcome. And I'm thinking about uh, some verses here, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And then Jonah, the study that I did last year, the pagan sailors cast lots and it falls on Jonah. 
that certainly wasn't chance, right? It's God working. So working through chance. So a, a good Hebrew would understand that the casting of lots was God giving you your inheritance, God giving you uh, the property lines. So David talking about this, obviously he's not talking about physical chunks of property and physical inheritance. He's talking about eternal, like what Scott said. That's falling into why David is so secure and why David is resting and content, right? Any thoughts? All clear? You like the colors? Okay, you hold my lot. King James again wins here. Thou maintainest my lot is the translation there. And the word to hold, to preserve, keep, I like this. Not to suffer, fail, or decline. You think about your inheritance. You could lose your inheritance very easily. Think about when, when invading kings came in. It was gone. You lost it. Uh, there are other ways that you could lose your inheritance. So there's got to be some anxiety. In that. And there is for us as well, holding on to the possessions that we have. But when, it, when you say the Lord, Yahweh, is holding your lot, it is not going to go into a state of ruin. It is not going to decay. It is not going away. Uh, and it's related, actually, to Sharma, which we looked at first, preserve, keep. It, it's a related word. I think I'm going to study Hebrew, actually. I'm going to learn it. It, it's, I think it's, it's worthy. Right, Grant? Is it? It's a lot of work, though, isn't it? I'm just a weekend warrior here. I, I find the translations. So the lines have fallen for me in pleasant. It is pleasant and delightful. I'm just pointing that out. However, this one here, I have a beautiful inheritance. It is really easy to pass over that term. Beautiful like what? It looks nice. It's got the lake. It's got the flowers on it. Oh, that is so beautiful. Take a picture. That, that's not the, the cor fully correct translation. King James says goodly heritage. So beautiful inheritance, goodly heritage. It's interesting to chew on that. But the word actually means to be sufficient or plenty. And I probably have my English wrong. But if I thought about it this way, what is it? So my inheritance is, or my heritage is sufficient and plentiful for me. I didn't know if I had to use plenty or plentiful for me. Did he have 11? That's a good point. Yeah, and he's clearly talking about eternal, right? So that, that that's some deeper dive into this, that the word beautiful is um, a little bit misleading. 
And then we talked about blessing the Lord. Uh, if anyone, oh, uh, Daniel, what is it to bless again? <laughs> Every all your all your prep from two weeks ago just wipe. There we go. Say good. What is extol exactly? I'd have to. Okay. Praise. It it involves speaking. It involves uh, speaking out, and there's gratitude in it. If you you are speaking something forward, I will bless the Lord. I will bless Yahweh. Yes. And it, it contrasts the I will not take up their names on my lips. 